questions? Romans chapter 1, I will be reading Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship in order to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word to our minds, our souls, and our affections. And to that end, Holy Father, allow the words of your Apostle Paul to penetrate penetrate our thoughts, to catch us up with your thoughts, to change our hearts, to bring forth worship, adoration, exaltation of the name of your Son, Jesus. And to that end, help this happen through this unfolding of this text to the glory of your name. Amen. Here's a few questions that I want to sit in the back of our minds this morning as we work our way through this text and make them personal. First, is there obedience to God that my ongoing faith in Christ is producing in my life? Or to say that another way, is there evidence that my faith is real? In this question, do you personally sense that Paul is referring to you when he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ? Let's just let those sit there as we focus on God's holy word. We saw last week, here we are 
in the opening, the salutation, the greeting section here of Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. And we noted last week this is his longest of all of his greeting sections in his letters and that it is full of massive theological statements. Now, last week, we concentrated only on verses 1 to 4, where Paul describes himself first as one purchased as a slave of Christ. And secondly, he said that I, Paul, am called by Jesus to be an apostle, a personal revelatory spokesperson, a mouthpiece of the Lord on a par with Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Peter and John. And then thirdly, he says, essentially, as Jeremiah was set apart from his mother's womb, for his prophetic ministry, I have also been set apart as an apostle in order to explain the meaning of Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the Old Testament. In other words, for the gospel of God, which is all over the Old Testament scripture and it is about God's Son. Foundationally, he goes on to say right here in the greeting section that good news, that gospel is about God, the Son, who became a human being in the line of King David. True man, now, who is always true God. And because of his atoning death, he says, God highly exalted him. That man, the son of David, to be the son of God in power. All right, that was last week. So this week we pick up with verse 5. Which connects, if you look at your text, it connects back to where he started in verse 1. Okay, So the flow is like this. Paul, called to be an apostle, set apart for the preaching of the good news of God about his Son, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to, or in order to, bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Here's what this says in other words, and then we'll work through it. He's saying the gospel of Jesus creates faith in people. And by that faith, it changes those persons' lives to lives of obedience to God. 
It transforms sinners, he says, all around the world to the Gentiles when they hear the good news. And he says, the ultimate goal of this is God's glory extended through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He says the people to whom that happens to are the ones who are loved by God, evidenced by God's calling them to faith in Jesus. So, let's look at it. First, Paul is making it clear. We looked at his apostleship last week somewhat, but here now he makes it clear his particular main focused calling as Jesus' mouthpiece is to the non-Jews. Gentiles, in other words. you got Jews and everybody else. Gentiles. Ethne. Where it says in the text, in verse 5, among all the nations, it's not a good translation. It should be translated like it normally is, the Greek word ethne, Gentiles. There's overlap. Yes, they're out there in the nations. True. They're in Rome, too. True. But he particularly means non-Jews. So the New American Standard Bible and the NIV translate it correctly as Gentiles. And so his point is this, that that Jesus designated Paul and gave him the instructions on how the gospel, on how the good news of the Jewish Messiah who suffers and dies and rises from the dead goes, now offer to his brothers, the Jewish brothers, first, but then it goes To everybody else, to every race, to every culture, to every ethnic group, to every language group around the planet. And Paul was the apostle who had all of the goods taught to him by Jesus on how that works. What's required? of Gentiles being saved by Jesus. That is, part of that is clear throughout the New Testament in Paul, and even in Jesus, is that the Jewish ceremonial and cultural laws like kosher diet and special days and circumcision and ritual washings fall away. So let's kind of get this flow about what he's talking about, that I am the apostle. Here he is, a Jew, saved by Christ. Jesus makes him his apostle to the Gentiles. So remember, on Damascus Road, Jesus, his first appearance to him, Paul is blinded. He's led into the city of Damascus. He's there for a couple days. He hasn't eaten. And then Jesus, in a vision, goes to one of his servants, a Christian named Ananias. And he says to Ananias, 
go to Paul and say to him, he is a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. And years later, Paul recounts his Damascus Road experience in front of King Agrippa. And he says, and he, Jesus, said to me, Paul, I will continue to appear to you. Delivering you from the people, your own people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those remnant Jews who are sanctified by faith in me. I'm sending you to the Gentiles, Paul. And Paul writes to the Galatians, God was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. And when the other apostles in Jerusalem saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jews, they said that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. And in Acts 20, Luke lets us know this about, because Paul told him. It was another trip he had at Jerusalem for a very short period of time, and they're ready to kill him, and Jesus in a vision appears to Paul, and he tells him, Get out of town. Saying to him, I will send you away to the Gentiles. He's the apostle to all of us in this room, except Andrew. Well, you should listen to him. The Jew. And this is significant of Paul's particular ministry in human history. It's significant for God's plan of glorifying His name in the world. Remember, God called Abraham, made a covenant with him, and God preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, through you, all the Gentiles, the nations of the earth, not just your family, Abraham, the Jews, but through you, all the nations will be blessed. And then, for 1600 years, God works almost exclusively with the Jews. Until the Jew, Jesus, comes, does his work, and rises from the dead. And at that moment in human history, it is now that the good news goes to the Jews first. 
And then to all the peoples and nations and ethnic groups and races, languages of the earth. And that right there is one of the main themes that Paul will be unfolding in the book of Romans. The Gentiles, that, oh, that is all the non-Jews, they come into God's people the same way that Jews need to come into God's people. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul in Romans. Chapter 3, he says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all Jew and Gentile, for all who believe, because there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so he goes on to say, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. There's only one God, the God who will justify the Jew by faith and the Gentile through faith. And in chapter 10 of Romans, he says it plainly this way. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. You know, Greek is a Gentile. Because the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus will be saved. Now remember, this Gentile mission with the gospel, it was promised all over the Old Testament. That, that was Paul's point we saw last week in verse 2. When he says, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the scriptures. Now, it really started in Genesis chapter 3, but, but, but you clearly just heard it when God initially calls Abraham. There's the gospel. It's preached to him. Or another example is Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, where the prophet, speaking on God's behalf for God through him, says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you, Israel, as a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. 
And in Daniel 7, that great vision Daniel got, verse 14, this is what he's shown. And behold, the clouds of heaven were opened, and there came one like a son of man. That's Jesus. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. We saw this last week in his resurrection. And to him, that Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Here it is. So that all peoples, all Nations and all languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So, back in our text in verse 5, Paul says his apostolic ministry is mainly focused on the Gentiles. And then he reaffirms this at the end of this letter. This is what he says in chapter 16. My gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now, through the apostles, and particularly me, Paul, as an apostle to the Gentiles, has been revealed through the Old Testament. Through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all the Gentiles according to the command of our eternal God in order, here it is, to bring about the obedience of faith. Yes, he ends the letter the way he began it in our verse, verse 5. He says the goal of preaching the gospel of Jesus is to bring about the obedience of faith. That sounds huge. And therefore, the question to ask of it is huge. What does that mean? What does he mean by obedience of faith? For instance, does it mean the obedience, which is, Faith. It's possible in the Greek it's a, that would be an appositional genitive. So in other words, does it, does it mean that this is just another way to say the gospel goes out and it calls for people to believe, to come to faith? In other words, another, does obedience of faith just mean, well, faith is the obedience. Or 
does it mean obedience in their lives? Obedience to God. In other words, obedience to God's ways, obedience to God's commands, which flow out of faith. That would be a subjective genitive. Okay, I know that flew over most of your heads except maybe Andrew's and Lindsay's. Or, but look, we have the exact same, in Michael's, same problem in English that you do in the original Greek. So Paul's words are actually ace, meaning for, and then the word hupakain, obedience, for, obe for obedience, and then the word for faith. Pistuios, which is in the genitive case, which means in English you always put the word of in front of it. So it just comes out in English, the obedience of faith. And we're still left, okay, what does that mean? All the time, if you ever think about our own language, it's the same problem. For instance, if I were to say, the love of God motivates me to do this. Oh, great. No, not great yet. You should ask the question. What do you mean by love of God? It could mean two very different things. In other words, do I mean my love for God? I love him so much it motivates me. It's a possibility. Or do I mean God's love for me? That's what motivates me. Very different, exact same words in English. And you have the same problem when you get love of God with the genitive case in the Greek New Testament. So the question is, what does it mean? Okay. I'm convinced that Paul means the subjective genitive here. Okay, what that means is this. Of God, that is the subject. God is the subject doing the word before it. Okay? And here it would mean, therefore, the faith is the subject producing what came right before it, the obedience. It is, in other words, Paul is saying, the obedience which flows out of faith. And why am I convinced of that? Because that's Paul's teaching throughout his letters. Let's look at it. Just start it this way. For the Apostle Paul, faith and obedience to God's commands. They're never separated. They are distinct. They're not the same. But they are, in his gospel, inseparable. Paul thinks that one cannot have a born-again heart. Uh, that is, a true heart of faith without subsequent actions of obedience to God, to Christ, to the one in whom they believe, or meaning trust. 
Now, see, that does not mean that the obedience is the faith. But it means that true faith creates the obedience. One, the faith, precedes the other, the obedience throughout the Christian's life. And so Paul is very, very clear now. Now watch what he does. Just real quick, it's an overview. You, in, hopefully you know Romans, many of you. That what he does then in chapters 3, 4, and 5 is he lays out the, the means. How is one saved? Or, or the word he's using throughout those chapters is how are you justified? That is, made okay with God. Uh, made right, meaning how is one forgiven of all of their sins. And not only that, where Jesus' perfect human righteousness is put to your account. He never sinned, but your sins were put to His account and then God punished them. And you never committed an act of righteousness, but Jesus throughout His life lived in perfect human righteousness as the second Adam. And you never did, and He took His life and imputed it to yours. How does that come? Paul argues throughout chapters 3 to 5. It, that means is it comes by faith. Alone. Not faith plus anything else. Faith alone apart from any obedience to God's law. It's crystal clear, a human being, all of us sinners, you cannot get saved from your sin because you obeyed God's command. You're already condemned. It cannot be done. So he mats what he's doing in chapters 3 to 5. But then, he goes on to teach in Romans that that faith that saves and is alone, faith alone saves, that faith is not alone, but it creates an obedient life. That's chapters 6, 7. And so as he's coming at the end of chapters 3 to 5, he's essentially, if, here's my summary of it, he says, as sinners, God's law only condemns us. But Christ lived in perfect righteousness on our behalf and suffered for our sins, removing our condemnation and bringing us eternal life through Jesus Christ. Those are his last words of chapter 5. And the very next words then are this in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we... 
who are Christians to continue in sin in order that grace may abound? Answer, no. And he goes on. Let not sin, therefore, Christian, reign in your mortal body in order to make you, here's this word again, to make you obey its passions. Oh yeah, it's yearning. It gives us commands all the time until we are dead. Flesh lives with us. He says, resist that. And he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life through Jesus Christ. And present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. He goes on, now that you have been set free from sin by Christ's work alone, and you become slaves of God because of Him. The fruit, here it is. There's a tree, faith, and there's fruit. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. And its end, eternal life. And then he says it this way in, in chapter 8. For to set the mind on the flesh, that's our sinful desires, to set your mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Holy Spirit who indwells you is life and peace. The mind that is set on the sinful nature within us is Hostile to God. And hates His commands. Because the mind set on the sinful nature, the flesh, does not submit to God's law. Obey it. Indeed, Paul says, it cannot. But watch what he says. You... Christians in Rome, assuming you're going to hear his language, assuming this is true of if you're actually, actually born again. You, however, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Flashes forward to our text. You who are loved by God. You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying is that the gospel brings about faith which saves, justifies. And then it goes on and it's producing obedience because of the ongoing indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. So one could say this, and it'd be absolutely true. We preach the gospel in order to bring about faith. 
So people were saved. True. It's utterly biblical. Or one could, could, could say it this way and include the whole ball of wax in one shot and say, we preach Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship in order to bring about obedience that flows from faith. That's what he's doing. You ask Jesus, what is this life of faith in you? He'll answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God the way Jesus meant that, the way Moses meant that, that's a born-again heart. Can't happen any other way. That's a heart issue. That's the essence of faith. There's no such thing as saving faith apart from loving God. That's the gift that He gives. The first commandment is the faith. The second commandment is the fruit. Flowing out of that is the second. Loving others. That's the New Testament. That's why the Apostle John could say without pause, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves the brethren has been, not will be, it's evidence that they have been born again. It's what he says. It's what he means when he says born of God. And that person knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Because the love is the fruit. It's the evidence of faith. Paul wrote it this way in, in Galatians 5. Circumcision or uncircumcision, they don't mean anything that really matters. The only thing that really matters is faith. Here's my translation. Working itself out in loving others. And then he goes on to say, for the whole law is fulfilled. In one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He, he means obedience to God's moral laws is fulfilled by the fruit of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And the first one of that fruit is love. Or you can say it this way. It is the Obedience that flows out of that heart of faith or love to God. The Apostle Paul cannot say this any clearer than he does in the book of Romans itself. In chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Christian, 
owe no one anything except to love each other. Because the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, in particular, watch what he does. He particularly is thinking of the Ten Commandments. Has fulfilled the law. What I mean is this. For the commandments, and then he lists a few. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Okay. And Paul's saying, you got the point? Because it's the next one. And any other commandment from God, they're all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Watch his logic. By the Holy Spirit. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, you don't sleep with their spouse. You don't steal their stuff. You don't slander them. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. God's commandments. In other words, love is the obedience that flows out of faith. So what we have seen so far, Paul says here now, in this opening greeting section, that obedience of faith is what the gospel preaching is and is meant to produce. One more question for this morning. Why? Well, because God wants obedient people. Wrong. It's not wrong that he wants that and will create that. That's, but that's not the why. Why does he set it up this way? The ultimate goal is not Christians who from their faith love Him and obey Him. That is the goal of the preaching of the Gospel and that creates that. But that's not the end goal. It's not the ultimate goal. What is it then? If you can read English, it's right there. Verse 5. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship in order to bring, here's the goal of that, to bring about the obedience that flows from faith. Why? For the sake of his name. That's why. Paul's mission to the Gentiles and their salvation was not the ultimate purpose of his ministry. But it was for the sake 
of His, in the context, Jesus Christ's name. Name. You don't want your name sullied. You don't want to sully your name. It means your reputation. It means your character. It means who you are. Who, who are you? O.J. Simpson. Something just happened in your heads right there. Because that name brought something to you. It's not pleasant about the name. Name signifies the character and the being of the person. And that's what drove Paul to preach. Because he had that straightforward, he was therefore immune from other preachers in his day who were already doing it much less in 21st century American evangelicalism. Think, okay, we got Jesus. Let's, Coca-Cola knows how to really sell a product. Let's go to them and figure out how to sell it. Because their ultimate goal wasn't to get people saved. The ultimate goal wasn't to get people in church. The ultimate goal was the glory of God expressed through His Son, Jesus Christ. And God forbid, Paul thought, that he ever was ultimately moved by anything else. His being, in other words, is at the center of everything. So let's unpack that a little bit. I know it's... God is the best of all beings. And he creates and he mercifully redeems sinners to come into the enjoyment of his being. Of his joy as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which is the greatest possible news for any of us who are called to him. You do not want God to be worshiping anything other than God. It's bad news for the creature. So you ask, why did the Son come? Why did He send Him in the line of David to suffer and die and rise? The answer, He did it for the glory of God, extended and magnified in forgiving sinners. Listen to how the Apostle John says this and see if it fits in your heart and your mind. I am writing to you, Christians, because your sins are forgiven. The next words for the first 10 years of my Christianity, they made no sense to me. I just thought it was Christian mumbo-jumbo. Because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. His glory's at stake. That's why He said a few verses before that you confess your sins, He's faithful. To whom? To Jesus! The cross, what he accomplished, he's righteous, he will not deny the work when you come confessing your sins. 
Jonathan Edwards, he put it this way. The 1700s pastor, theologian, philosopher. The godly are designed for unknown and inconceivable happiness. And the whole context there is that this is coming out of his laying out that God has created and does everything to glorify himself. That's why that line, the God for unknown and inconceivable happiness. Goes on to say, this glory of God, it consists in the creatures, us admiring and rejoicing and exalting in the manifestation of His beauty and excellency. For God has no glory actively from those creatures to behold His glory and take no pleasure in it. But the essence of the glorifying of God consists, therefore, in the creatures rejoicing in God's manifestation of His beauty, which is the joy and the happiness that we speak of as Christians. The good news, in other words, is that God desires His glory above Everything, which means he desires to display that glory in mercy through Jesus Christ for the eternal happiness of all who believe in him. And as a result, his glory is extended in the person, in the, the name of his son. When it is adored. John Stott, some of you, if you haven't read his great book, he died a few years back now, five, six years ago, but great book, The Cross of Christ. But in his, in his commentary, in his exegesis of our passage, like I'm trying to do, he takes it at face value. He writes... The highest of missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as it is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God in verse 18 of Romans 1. But the motive is zeal burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship in order to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, including you, Christians in Rome, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's a weird way to refer to Christians. And it's big, and so we're going to come back to it next week. It is the gospel 
message of our Lord Jesus Christ that God uses to create faith in Jesus, which produces a life of obedience. As Paul would just concisely say later in chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth, as you hear the true gospel, Jesus is Lord. And you believe deep down in the recesses of your being, when you hear the testimony that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're that person, go on. If you're not sure, he welcomes all who will call upon him. Be that person. Be caught up into God's purpose for creating anything. And that is to glorify Himself through making you happy for all eternity with who He is for you. Let's pray. Father, our closing time from hearts that love you at the glory of your purposes come forth from us to the glory of our Lord Jesus. May his name and renown extend.